This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. All right, so uh, as a child, I grew up loving Star Trek, and I know you have similar love for it. How was it trying to create your own Star Trek series, at the same time poking a little fun at it? Well, it's... I mean, it's interesting. Our, our show exists in a pocket of science fiction that, that hasn't really been delved into in, in 20 years. It's like we, we live in a time where there's a lot of uh, dark, dismal, dystopian sci-fi, and, and I think there's an appetite for the other side of that, the stuff that makes you kind of want to be there, that invites you in, and it's brightly lit, and there's carpeting, and there's houseplants, and you know all this stuff that feels like feels more like you know, the friend's apartment than, uh, than, than a, the bridge of a spaceship. So that, that to me was, was really the, like, how do, okay, what's, what's the next step in this, in this brand of sci-fi storytelling? Or what hasn't been done? And hopefully that's the Orville. Now, what was your reaction to your scripted character when you first read the pilot? I had multiple feelings about her because, well, things I can't tell you, but... Um, <laughs> But ultimately, I had a, a, a love for her immediately because she, you know, she carries so much love for this this man, and and though they're not together, there's still this um, this need to help, and and she comes through, and they're this amazing partnership, and I just thought like that hasn't been seen for a while either, you know, this this deep love, and it's about this will they or won't they situation, and I just I couldn't have been more excited to be a part of something. What was your reaction when you first read the pilot script to your character? I read Seth MacFarlane's name, and that was the most exciting part. The script was, I didn't care. It, it could have been Kaka. It just had Seth's name on it, and I just wanted to. And it's, but, but, of course, the script was just wonderful. And it had a lot of funny in it, but it had a lot of great um, uh, characters who were grounded and human. And how about you, your reaction? I fell in love with the script from the moment I read it, and I especially fell in love with my character, Alara. Um, I think my favorite thing about this show in particular is that it is such a blend of genres. You know, you have the, sh- the sci-fi, and you have the comedy, and you have the drama, and you have these really strong characters. And for me, whenever I'm picking up a script, that's what I'm looking for, is a strong, dynamic character. And Seth is so great at creating that. And every aspect of the word you know he um like my character for example i play Lara katan and she's the chief security officer who is very young and very inexperienced um but happens to have super strength so she's the one in charge of protecting everyone and i thought that was very cool for seth to choose um that type of person in that specific role because it's something we've never really seen before now, did you remember your reaction the first day of set when you first went onto the bridge? Oh, <laughs> it was like being born again. It was. it was, or birthing a baby. It was so beautiful. Yeah. You're looking out and you're just, every, it was silent. It was silent. It was completely silent. I think I still get that feeling when I walk on set. My, my you know, I get butterflies and, and my jaw kind of just drops because... I'm so in awe of what this show has been able to create. And it's really 
started to feel like home. We've been there for so long now shooting this season that I walked onto the soundstage after not being there for a week and I felt like comfortable. I felt at ease and relaxed and I've never felt that on a set before in my life. What was your initial reaction to the pilot script for your character? I couldn't believe, I mean, okay, I love science fiction, first of all, <clears throat> but I couldn't believe the originality because of the comedy, right? So, like, you, like okay, my favorite sci-fi movie is Blade Runner. Not a comedy, but, but, um, but I'm fascinated with the world. This blends that in terms of technology and, and, and the plight of, of, of non-human entities and then you also have comedy in it so I love comedy I never get to do comedy and um, my agents you know I had actually another job lined up that was a science fiction job that was not comedy and they're, they're like you have to read this you're gonna love it because I've been complaining to them about not being able to do any comedy and now I get I get I get everything it's like my dreams have come true so um, it is like that I mean it's just that full you know it's rich it's it's a dramedy it's there's things that are terribly sad that happen and things that happen that are incredibly funny all in sorry all in 60 minutes you know so and every week that's what you're gonna get um so that's my reaction to it it's that it's just you just never know what you're gonna get and i can't wait to see what's next um and that's the way i feel about every episode i haven't read 113 and uh, we're working on 112 right now but i haven't read 113 on purpose because I want to just wait and see. So, um, yeah. And from the production standpoint, what was your reaction the first day on set when you were, walked onto the bridge? I felt like a little kid who got locked into the toy store at night because it's like, I can't believe we get to play with this stuff. You know what that feels You always want to be locked into the toy store. And, like, you know, your mom forgets about you and then she comes and gets you in the morning and you've got to play with all the toys, you know. Uh, and that's what it feels like going to work every day because the production values are through the roof. I mean, I really feel like we're on a spaceship. What was your a reaction when you first read the pilot to your character? <laughs> I laughed out loud, man. You know, I was like, wow, this is hilarious. And whenever you can read something and just unbridled laughter, you know it excites you, you know, because you know you got something good going on and you know, it's an experience you want the audience to, you want the audience to have that experience you had reading it for the first time. But it's also very nuanced, multi-layered. You know, the sci-fi is very, very real. It's comedy and drama. They're characters with a lot of heart and humanity. There's technology. There's it's every it's a lot in this show. It's a really, really dense, amazing new deal. It must be good because you have to come out The Walking Dead, which was kind of heavy. Uh, how is it being able to do drama, but have some fun, play with a phaser, and actually do jokes too, but also tell a real story? Well, you know, the amazing part of playing this character is the Mocklins, as they are, from an all male species, uh, they have a particular way of being. They, you know, there's a particular cadence. And a lot of it I have to draw off of my classical theater training to be able to do it. Even though it's not written like Shakespeare, obviously, but they have a particular way of speaking. And it, you have to, it takes a lot of energy to do it. Yeah. 
So, and it's a, it's a challenge because it's hilarious, but you have to keep a straight face. And you know the prosthetics; it's amazing work. But Howard Berger and and that's Greg Nicotero's company, and and it's amazing work. But you know sometimes I'm looking at Peter. You know you go like, if you just want to break up laughing, you know. Which is hard when you're doing a straight drama yeah, scene. So you have to. So, you know, it, it takes a couple of take twos and take threes in there. But it was fine, though, because, you know, that's the richness of it and the beauty of it, you know. You're going to harness. You have to harness it, you know, because it doesn't work if you don't play it out fully, you know. What was your reaction to the pilot script, your character specifically? Uh, well, my character comes across as quite a icy kind of guy. He's, um, he's actually an alien. He's from the planet Kalon. He's a synthetic life form. So uh, in the, uh, not a robot, but, uh, but something like that. And he, uh, in true fashion, in, the, in a sort of artificial life form sense, he, is, he doesn't really understand what biological life forms go through. And so we have lots of hilarious situations where, uh, where he doesn't and, and the ramifications of that provide the uh, the comedy for it i think he's uh, he's got a long arc this character so you know there's lots of unexpected things that happen to him and we start to understand where he's coming from really how fun is it being able to do uh sci-fi action drama and you know because that's what's talking about you do some serious scenes but also mixing in comedy as an actor blending all those things together well it's wonderful i mean you know you couldn't ask for anything more really some say you can have all of that in a shakespeare play so if we can compare it to anything perhaps it is a shakespeare play uh yeah it's 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 a joy it's a joy to go to work it's a joy it was a joy to get the job i actually traveled and moved from the uk to la to do this so um so big, big, big change for me. And uh, it's been an adventure from, from, from go, really. Yeah. When you first read the script, the original Star Trek, what was your initial reaction? Not only did I want to do it, I wanted to name her. <laughs> uh, and did. And, um, and they were they were so wonderful to work with uh, uh, the studio and the people running the show itself putting on the show itself and with us you know the it was uh it was it was an, uh, um a new thing for me cuz i come from theater and uh and and television and and uh I had a, and I'm a singer, so I had a club act. <laughs> and then this came along, and it was very, very brand new, you know. And and uh, I kept saying, are you sure they want me? <laughs> and they said, they want you for sure. And I said, that is all right with me. <laughs> uh how soon did you realize, I mean, this is 1966, so, I mean, it's not a great time socially in the United States. How soon did you realize how impactful Lieutenant Horror and you were becoming in society? Well, they, what was wonderful is that they um, wanted me to create her. So I created her, and, and um, as, in the image that I wanted her to be, you know, 
And uh, it, it just took off, and I was so delighted that I'd created something beside performing some, uh, some, uh, um, someone else's writing, you know. And uh, it, it was delightful to, to do, and then it, it, it put something in your head to just give more. You know, which is what we actors do. <laughs> and and um, I really, really enjoyed doing it, and I was honored to be chosen. Now, most actors in film and TV don't get to work with their colleagues over decades. How has that been for you? You guys went this journey all together. I, we went through it from the beginning, um, and it's not the end, <laughs> you know. And so uh, I was, as I said, honored to be chosen to create this character. And I did, and that's what they did. They had not created the character. When they hired me, they said, so what do you think about this character you're going to play? Who is she? What does she do? And I went, a dog? What? You don't know? And they said, and the a producer was wonderful. He said, I really wanted to, to bring you into the picture and see what you would, who you would be. And that's how Uhura came to be. That's so amazing. Thank you so much. What was your initial reaction when you read Game of Thrones Battle, Battle of the Bastards? Uh, oh boy, how are we going to get this done? <laughs> it, it's interesting because the episode itself is very large and we worked on one segment of it, the Marine battle sequence, and that alone would have constituted a great bulk of work for any other episode. Then to roll that in with the actual battle sequence that was done elsewhere, it's an insanely huge episode. And a lot went on. And I've spoken a lot about how we grow in complexity each season. Every single season, we kind of push the bar up of just trying to do something bigger and bigger and bigger each time. That comes, and I say we, it comes down from the production. In season five, there was this epic battle in the Danzac Arena. In season six, there was uh, the Battle of Bastards and the Marine battle sequence. You know, one example of how complexity grew. Uh, in season five, Daenerys riding on the dragon was shot very simply. She was sitting down statically, the camera was static. Not a lot moved as the dragon was flying away. In season six, there was an incredible amount of pre-animation with staging that dragon motion that was then taken by Joe Bauer, the production supervisor, and his crew, and staged with motion control camera, motion control buck, and they flew all around all this, and so you have these giant sweeping dynamic moves, which are much more interesting and much more difficult to get done. So I do circle back to the battle, that, that scene, to me it was the most realistic battle scene I've ever seen is what I think a real battle scene would be in those days. How do you balance that? Because you want to keep it grounded in reality, but you have to add headless horses, everything, the chaos, but also make it feel real. Uh, and that's the interesting part about working on fantasy. There's always this delicate balance between the things we know and the things that we want to see. And in some ways, I think that's actually harder than just doing realistic, grounded, and reality types of things. Uh, you've got to find that balance. It, it, it's a storytelling, and that's... Uh, that's the line I think that all storytellers have to walk is how do you keep your audience engaged without taking them out of the story? And there's no road answer about you just do this. It, you, just, you find it. 
Well, because you, 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 the next episode also had a wholly different style, directing style. Uh, when Cersei blows up the uh, the key, it's the wildfire, was that a different kind of challenge? Did you ever have to deal with, you never deal with wildfire except, you know, like that fact. An episode particularly, but the uh, stylistically, you know, there's obviously a show style that is that it kind of threads throughout the entire series. There is an episode style that can vary based on director and director, but the visual effects, I think, remains pretty consistent in, in its approach to things because the production supervisor, Joe, is there on every episode, so he has a continuity to that. And I think that you'll even see from season to season there's some continuity. Drogon grows from season five to season six, but it's still obviously Drogon. So there's a consistency in storytelling just because it's threaded through the Game of Thrones universe, and the EPs have a very consistent view of what they want to achieve with it. Uh, okay, so you've seen every frame of the explosion. Is there any hope that Marjorie survived? <laughs> Even if I knew. You're not, I know you're not allowed I, to say. I couldn't say because there's probably a sniper on the bridge over there <laughs> waiting for me. We do have one other. Uh, uh, I'm a big fan of monster movies, and you did, uh, you've done some. I've worked on a couple monster movies. I worked on a Wolfman, yes. Uh, and Wolfman was an interesting story because I actually worked on reshoots for Wolfman. So they'd actually done a bulk of the work. And we came in for the end fight sequence, if you recall, the, the dramatic fought for son battle. And that was really interesting because I got to work with the second unit director that I'd worked with before on the Mummy movie. Uh, and it was very synergistic. So we could sit there and block out. And, and there was a lot of cooperation about how things were staged. He had this amazing fight sequence blocked out. And then we talked about how we can you know, get visual effects to work within the context of that. So that was a lot of fun for me personally, just because I really, really enjoyed working with Vic Armstrong a lot. And uh, the sequence is dynamic and interesting, and the visual effects were uh, just a ball. In a lot of ways, the monster movies kind of, I don't want to say created special effects, but was the birth of, you know. There is a lot of history in that, yes. I mean, vis uh, you start with special visual effects, just blowing things up. Uh, monster movies, you have costumes, you have explosions, you have practical effects, and then you give way, as all things do, by trying to find more cost-effective ways to do those things. So now maybe the creature's digital, or maybe the explosion's composited in. So safety and cost tend to eke their way into the production, and visual effects is a part of that process. It's interesting, because we just did a, we did a show with Michael Westmore, uh, the, the makeup artist, and do you prefer, when it comes to the mass CGI, or do you prefer an actual mask and do the CGI around it? Depends on the application. It really does. I, there's, a, there's a time and a place for everything. You've got to look at the context of what it's going to do. You've got to look at the strengths of what the tool is. All these things are just tools. One isn't better globally than the other one. They all have their place and their context. Would I have done a Wolfman entirely CG for the movie? Absolutely not. Having the makeup on the actor on the day doing it in person was good. You capture that person's performance. Would I want that actor running along a rooftop and jumping dynamically from building to building? Probably not. That one's digital. That's the right time and the right place. So, yeah, you, you find the tool for the problem. Uh, well, congrats on Wonder Woman. Uh, so let's go back in time. What was your uh, initial emotional reaction when you first read the script? <laughs> Uh, my first emotional reaction when reading the script of Wonder Woman, I was, I thought, uh, oh my God, how are we going to do this? How are we going to pull this off? Um, so I was excited about the possibility of doing the movie and, and glad I was on board, but I, I was completely terrified. So um, I, I, abject terror is probably the first emotion. 
to me, like the, one of the challenges was trying to create a superhero movie and the look of a superhero movie, but set in World War One era. How did you and Patty Jenkins, the director, come to that kind of balance? Well, I think the idea that we talked about a lot was that you couldn't um, make a ultra realistic sort of BBC documentary of World War One and then put Wonder Woman in the center of it. We the look of the film should have a little what we call the ten percent pop, so it shouldn't be. Uh, ultra realistic, but it shouldn't be so uh, uh, overly stylized that you didn't relate to it. So we tried to find something that sort of skated those both of those lines. And I'm not r- exactly sure if I could articulate how we pulled it off, but that idea was foremost on our minds the whole way. Yeah, I mean, one of the most challenging sequences I saw was the Amazon, the Germans storming the beach. Was that how did you approach that one? Because that was crazy. Yeah, that I it, it was a. It, it was a huge sequence, obviously, and uh, we had several weeks to shoot it um, on a beach in uh, Italy. And, uh, you know, a large cast of, of, of hundreds of, of, of performers and stunt people and multiple units, um, a lot of cameras. Um, so it was just about... Um, you know, divvying up the workload between uh, our unit and the second unit who were responsible for a lot of the stunts and the uh, really complicated wire work and uh, some of the horse charging and and everything. And each day was sort of controlled chaos. Um, And, uh, you know, uh, look, I got to give it up to our our fantastic um, uh, uh, assistant director team who did all the organization and and our, our stunt people who broke everything out for us um, so we could bite it off in manageable chunks. Well, the other sequences that really impressed me, well, the, movie, the whole movie impressed me, but the, uh, the, the middle of the movie when we went to the small village, obviously Wonder Woman saves the day, yeah. but I liked, I liked that because it did have that world in one feel, and now you're switching to the romance. Did you approach that differently because now you just want the romance to kind of do and you pull back a little the superhero thing? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think at, at that point we... Um, yeah, I, I mean, it, it was such a romantic scene, and, and Gal and Chris um, were so good in it. Um, my job really was to get out of the way, was just to sort of set the mood with the lighting and then get out of the way and just let them interact. And I'm assuming you have to work a lot with Gal because she's doing a lot of action sequences and timing. How does that collaboration work? Well, uh, luckily, Gal is um, uh, not only a great actress but an extraordinary human being on top of it. So she always has a smile on her face. She was always happy to go to work. Um, she was always um, very willing to accommodate me and the camera. And um, and so we worked very closely together. And um, a lot of times she's doing a, a move and, you know, the camera is doing something in conjunction with her. You know, it's so I'd have to talk to her about, you know, it's we're coming from up in the ceiling on a crane up into a close-up of your face and just wanted to let you know the speed. And and so, and she would then give me feedback, okay, I'm going to be right here. I'm going to turn my body like this. And so we would adjust to her, and, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a very open dialogue. Uh, when you were making it, because I know you're in the middle of making it and you're, you're donated, did you have any inclination that this was going to be so embraced? Did you have any feeling that, wow, this is really special? No, I, I, I really didn't. I mean, I, I figured, I knew we were making a good movie, and I, so I figured we'd ha- we'd get some good reviews. I, I knew that just based on the, the the character alone, that it would probably do pretty well. But I did not expect it 
to have the impact that it's had. It's just extraordinary. Uh, one, one little thing, uh, you've worked on Game of Thrones. Uh, compared to other TV shows, what was the prep process for Game of Thrones and their shoot schedule? Game of Thrones. There's nothing like it. Um, it's uh, yeah. It's it's one of the biggest. It's as big as any. It's as big as Wonder Woman. It's as big and complicated as any of the you know, hundred million dollar movies I've I've done. Uh, just on a sh- a little shorter time schedule, um, but it's got all the ambition and all the scope of those kinds of movies um, compared to other TV shows. You know, lengthy uh, schedules. You're all over the world. Um, multiple episodes are being shot. So, and but the great thing is, is that as a DP, you get a lot of prep. So you get a lot of time to think and work things out. So, and you need it. And how was doing probably the greatest get death scene in the history of Game of Thrones, the Golden Crown? <laughs> I, really, we're we're still considered the greatest. I I, I, I felt like we've been surpassed. Satisfying. Yeah, it is. It is satisfying, definitely. Um, uh, again, like. Uh, I, I, it was great, like working with all those actors at, at that time, and you know, Thrones was nothing at that point. Like we didn't know what it was going to be, and and they were all just such great, cool people. And and Jason Momoa was a huge personality on set, and um, and but it was amazing to watch him pour that stuff on uh, Viserys' head, and I don't know. It, yeah, I loved it. The th- you know the thud that Viserys makes on the ground. I it was I, I, I had a great fun shooting that scene. So what was uh, your reaction when you read the pilot to your character and the story? Uh, the, the pilot of the whole show. Yeah. I thought it was one of the most interesting female characters that I'd ever read um, because she is given her own fully articulated moral universe. So often, just from a dramaturgical standpoint, women characters are written to expose the faults or to prop up the righteousness of the male character's agenda and perspective. And Colony was a, a, a fully legitimate two-hander. And how do you feel the characters evolved from season one to now the start of season three? Um... You know, they, I mean, season two almost tore them apart and, and the end of season one. And I think they've, I think it just keeps getting more and more complicated. You know, I mean, Katie, I think, suffers the fate of any idealist, which is that when you start trying to put your ideology into practice, it becomes far messier than you ever could have anticipated. And you may be willing to fight a war, but... It really matters what general you follow into that war. Uh, and how excited are you, Boo? Because I know you can't say what happens, but maybe taken to a different location or a whole new world for season three. I'm, I'm beyond excited. I mean, look, I thought that season two was a far superior show to season one, and I loved season one. And I've, the episodes that I've read of season three tell me that they're doing that again. I mean, every, every year that they dig deeper... Um, it's exciting, you know, we're expanding the world, we're getting deeper into the mythology, and every time you do that, you also get deeper into those ethical questions of what does it mean to be loyal to an idea, and what does it mean to be loyal to a person, and are those things sometimes mutually exclusive? Your initial reaction to the pilot and your character? Loved it. Uh... 
I'm a father of young children, so it's just a, it was very timely in my life that this role came along when I understand these stakes so well. Um, so for me, it was a no-brainer. It's, it's what I wanted to do. I love Carlton. I'd been looking at Ryan's work before. He wrote a script called The Sixth Gun I was interested in doing the year before. Uh, so I was immediately intrigued by just who was involved, and then I read the script. That was it. I was, and then I knew Juan Campanella was attached. I watched his movie, uh, Secret in Their Eyes, and that was it. I was like, this is fantastic, this uh, ensemble of creators. So that was it. I loved the story, and it was very timely in this political climate. Of course, that was before. You know, they came up with the wall before. So it's your fault that the wall is being built. Uh, <laughs> really? No, no. Uh, so then, for, for, for you, how was what has been the biggest evolution for your character from season one to now? Like, what is the, the change you've been most excited about? Well, I was excited last year for season two, just because he finally did get his son back, but he was tainted by what he had to do. The first season, yes, it was bad to collaborate, but the second season, it got dirty. You know, when you are involved with a group, even if you don't do the act of torture or killing, you are still responsible for not stopping it. And so my character's code really was damaged last year. So this year... He's got his family back together for the first time since the show started. So it's just a nice little moment uh, uh, that they're all together and safe-ish. <laughs> How excited about you going into season three? Now you're going to a different location, a different, let's say a different world without giving away too much away. Yeah. How is that for you? Fantastic. I love the way the season changes tonally every year. Um, Ryan said that from the beginning when we discussed even doing the show, and he said that every year I want to change the tone uh, of the show and keep it moving in different directions. And so this is no exception. We are now outside the walls, whereas last year was, you know, all, all about LA and the repression and city. Now we're, you know, kind of wild and free, but not. So we're off off the grid. It's going to look different tonally. It's going to feel different. Uh, so I'm excited about that because I grew up in Georgia, North Georgia forests and woods. So I'm going to be very comfortable out there. <laughs> One last quick question: uh, We're we're going to be talking to Jack Bender tomorrow. Oh, I saw in an interview. Yeah. So yeah, what was the process working with him? What was special about Jack as a director? Oh, Jack was an amazing, like he was the perfect general to have out in the jungle, you know, with his big cigar. And his girls, and he was wild, and we were all out there living in, the, in nature basically every day, and Jack was fantastic. I loved working with Jack, and, and I wish him the best, whatever he's doing. <laughs> all right, so, well, welcome back to our show, Jack. Uh, thank you for coming back. Uh, all right, so we'll start with the source material. Stephen King, obviously the greatest horror writer, I would argue, in the history of the world. I personally find his non-supernatural even better. Like, The Shawshank is my favorite feature, and this is actually my favorite adaption um, for television. What, was, what attracted you to this material? Well, Stephen and I were talking about finding something to do together, and one day in the mail came this big package 
that was the galleys for his yet unpublished novel, Mr. Mercedes. Needless to say, I was thrilled. I sat down and read it in two days, loved it, and for the reason you're talking about, I thought, no, well, first of all, Stephen King had never attempted the detective genre. And seeing Stephen King inhabit the genre was thrilling to me and how he personalized it with his own eccentric point of view and characters. But what I loved most about doing it as a show was that it explored the horror inside the characters, not outside the characters. And I knew that would make a great show. I said to Stephen, you know, the actor who's born to play it is Brendan Gleeson. And Stephen said, oh my God, you're right, I love him. And as fate would have it, Brendan Gleeson is extraordinary as our Hodges. Yeah, uh, so what was the biggest challenge, because it's three books, adapting it into the ten episodes? Was it, did you have any wrestle with the added cut or add? Or well, no. Well, well, you know, first of all, unlike the days of Lost, when we were doing 24, 26 episodes, you know, now in the more insane the, uh, paradigm of eight to ten to twelve episodes where you can really, you have the room to explore a character, and yet you don't run your wheels in the sand. Um, so, when I had my second brilliant idea on the show to get, go to David Kelly to adapt it, because I knew David, had worked with David, and I knew that when David went down those dark alleys, he was, a, he was brilliant, he's brilliant at whatever he writes, but that would take him in an exceptional way. He loved the book, and he came aboard. And with our other wonderful writers, Dennis Lehane, Brian Gobeloff, and uh, Sophie Owens-Bender, proud to say, we um, pretty much used the architecture of the first novel, Mr. Mercedes, for the architecture of our season one. The big events happen from the book, and there's some reinventing, as there always is, and uh, but... You know, I said to David early on, the kind of TV show I want to do, I said, and I don't know, I want to do a show where I can see one of our main characters just staring into a spoon for much too long. And he went staring in a spoon. I said, yeah, I don't know why. And maybe it's not a spoon, but maybe it is. So David wrote this brilliant scene in the pilot where... Hodges is staring into a spoon in a restaurant and sees himself upside down. And then he David Kellyized that idea. And uh, it's, it's just a detail and a nuance, but it just shows the kind of room you have to explore character that's surrounded by plot, but isn't entirely, you know, the characters react to the obstacle course they're in and the plot and what they have to figure out to survive. But it's a very character-driven piece with a brilliant cast. Harry Treadaway, Kelly Lynch, Mary Louise Parker. I mean, everybody in our show is exceptional. Yeah, uh, so let's talk a little about Brendan. Uh, what did you see in him? And I noticed with him, you started to him very fast. We knew where he was immediately. Broken, retired, not meant to retire. So what did you see in Brendan, and how did you want to make sure he started when we first on the screen? Well, Brendan really responded to it. You know, Brendan had never done a series, and um, he wasn't necessarily keen on doing one, but he read David's pilot and loved it, and then he read the book 
and loved the book. And he was very attracted to playing a man who was adrift in his life, disenfranchised from who he was and what he did in the world, which I think all of us, whatever our age, you can relate to. You know, I've always been a lot. I've always defined myself by what I make in the world and who I am. And that's just the way I am, and a lot of people are that way. Brendan really wanted it to be a show about a broken man who's flawed and brought back into life with this cat-and-mouse experience where he has to do what he'd never done before, which is find out who did this heinous crime. And Brendan was very much into being a shaggy dog, the first image, we see him at the beginning, two years before, at the crime scene that is the trigger of our show. And then we see him in a big close-up with a beard that's really unruly, his hair screwed up, in a T-shirt, a little overweight, beard, just very unattractive. And um, he was all for that. And slowly... In the 10 episodes, he gets brought back to life because of the experience and because of um, the people, because of everything. And so Brendan loved the idea of playing that broken man. And I had an idea for the titles that I wanted to be very simple and not jazzy and just focus on him in the morning. You know, not, not, I didn't want the show to be style over content. I want it to be character first. Now, of course, you had the different challenge with the villain because you have to humanize him. Uh, of course, you have to follow him in 10 episodes. What was working with Harry to create that? Because I thought he was terrific in the role. Harry, yeah. Have you seen the pilot? I've seen the first four episodes. Great. Yeah, yeah, Harry Treadaway is exceptional. Harry Treadaway constantly surprised me, challenged me. We had mutual ideas and, and, and danced together brilliantly. And David Kelly felt from the beginning we had to make this character empathetic. So that started with David's script and his guidance with the scripts and Harry's execution, his relationship with his mother. But, but the, Harry, it's, it's a very extraordinary performance, I think. And you saw the first four, and it goes way further and he is and working with him I said to Harry at one point you know I don't know where it is but I see Brady in his basement just listening to one of his songs on his old boombox and just dancing and I don't know why but just dancing and Harry said great I'd love that and I said you could be in your underwear you could be naked he said oh it's great I'll do it so one day we had this scene where Harry it was written that he, he's there in the morning and he's just looking up stuff on his computer that he has to find out. And I said, why don't you... Oh, he comes in. He goes, what if I dance in this? And I said, great, let's try it. And he said, I brought this song. It's a Radiohead song, which is now in our show. And he did this dancing and pulled out the the gadgetry he had to check and compared it to this and that. And it is the most bizarre, wonderful way to start a show. And I didn't tell David or any of our writers. 
And I think Dennis Lehane wrote that episode. He's a brilliant writer. And Dennis saw it and went, oh, my God. Oh, my God. So that's what it was like working with Harry. It's just great. In episode four, uh, he goes back to his serial killer ways, but he kills somebody we're kind of rooting for him to do. How did you like that kind of balance? I think, I think, um, I think it's fair storytelling. And I think it's that thing of, of the yin and the yang of, oh, goody, off that guy. You know, I think you're absolutely right. It's just he's defending his friend. Um, so I think it just adds to the complication of us not rooting for this character, but somehow connecting to him. So we have a question for you, because uh, we're a screenwriting TV show. What was your initial reaction when you first read the script to your character? Uh, script to screen? Okay, wow. Well, I know your stuff then, because I've been on your site and, and, and had it. Yeah, I mean, because I'm a writer as well, and, you know, like every writer, I hate writing, and um, I'm trying to avoid it wherever possible. And, and I'm always looking for shortcuts and uh, tips, and uh, I... Uh, so wow, but really, I'm a, I'm a fan of your your. I've, I've gleaned many uh, many uh, tips from. I'd love. Thank to you so much. Do you do you ever have like like uh, like older people coming taking your course? Uh, we actually, we might open up something like that, but we definitely like actors and other people, actor writers especially, coming to talk to the students. Right. Well, you know, I tell you, I'd, I'd love to do that. You know. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Let's go. <laughs> so so the script. So what was your feeling when you first oh, read right. it for your character? So. Uh, I, first of all, the very first thing I noticed was that, uh, okay, the, it was called The Tick. Uh, and then underneath, it's on the very first page, uh, a parody in quotes, right? So that immediately made me think, uh, a parody. I mean, whilst I've done many sort of parodic things in my career, and uh, mostly intentional, but sometimes not, and then I, 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 it makes you think of like, something that's kind of unsophisticated and uh, sketchy or, you know, like, like we were talking about, I don't know, those, those big parody movies that, that they went through a little spate of doing, you know. Nothing, not substantial at all, you know. But when I read the script and, and read how, uh, first of all, the, beautif the beautiful prose of, of, the, of the character and this, this odd, this odd um, character who speaks in, this, in these... these wonderful uh, maze-like sentences, um, I was kind of in awe, in awe because, you know, I'm a writer as well and I've been writing a, uh, I've been writing a, a book for the past three years. I've written TV shows and things that haven't happened and like plenty of, like every writer, you know, and it's hard. It's a really hard thing to write. And, and so I was, I was impressed that, that like, uh, I thought as well there were some things I didn't understand about it, like structurally. You know, you, you know, you, you know all about structure, and and this thing didn't seem to have. Uh, it seemed to be missing some elements of that, like those structural things that are present, whether you notice them or not, in in a script. And uh, but then I was, I was sort of proved wrong when I actually then read it again and concentrated and and in fact the whole series is about the hero's journey it's like i think screenwriters in particular will 
really dig what Ben and and uh, David Fury have done with the uh, with the whole hero's journey thing. There are there are plenty of little nuggets there. What was your initial reaction when you first read the pilot? I, I was just in awe. I mean, I was a, a big fan of The Tick in the previous incarnations, but I was, I think, skeptical, like all fans were, when they heard they were doing a new version, because it's just like, how many times can you mess with success? You know, what are the odds of getting it right a third time, a fourth time? But, um, you know, I read the script knowing nothing about what this new version was going to entail, and it was just such a different take on the characters from such a different starting point, from such a new sort of emotional well. Uh, it was so exciting to me. And so that was my initial response is, wow, I'm excited. I really want to see this show. And then my second response was, wow, this is nerve-wracking because a lot of this show is on Arthur's shoulder. So A, they're never going to let me play this part. And B, if I do, I have a lot of responsibility to not mess this up. And then somehow I got the part and then now have just been struggling to not mess it up since then. Yeah, I mean, the pilot has a very well-defined character of Arthur, so it gives you a lot to work with. Yeah. But how did you find yourself in the world? Because it is a surreal world. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I think my goal is, as you said, it's a very well-defined character. It's all sort of there in the script. You know, sometimes you have to dig and make up your own sort of stuff because it's not really there on the page. And with this, that wasn't the case. Ben wrote such a clearly defined character with such a clearly defined psychology. And my goal was to always uh, not play the world I was in. You know, Arthur is this everyman. He sort of doesn't belong in this world. So I always tried to play it like I was in a Sundance movie or something, you know, and allow the comedy to come out of the juxtaposition between what I'm going through, hopefully in a position that's relatable to audience members and all the craziness that's surrounding me. And the relationship, of course, with the tick, how did you uh, work with your castmate to kind of develop Arthur slash, you know, Mothman's relationship with the tick? Yeah, I think we just got really lucky that we hit it off very quickly. You know, doing a show like this, it's kind of like an arranged marriage. The whole thing is going to live or die based on how well the two of us work together. Our individual performances can be good, but the fans aren't going to buy it if the tick and Arthur don't feel right together when they're talking, when they're moving. All of that is what fans are really going to approve or reject. And, um... You know, we met and immediately hit it off as people and have a very similar approach to acting and similar philosophies when it comes to comedy, similar reference points. So we're just very collaborative, which is amazing. You know, I have every reason to want to collaborate with him, but Peter doesn't need to reach down and pull me into his process, and he does. And it's constantly a back and forth where after every take we go, did you think that was good what I was doing? Which version do you think was better? Do you have any ideas of things I could do that were funnier? You know, having sort of a second set of eyes for each other's performances. And we just got lucky that, you know, I think it's gotten deeper and stronger as we've gone on, but, you know, we just innately hit it off from the get-go. So let's let's go back to the pilot. What was your initial reaction to your character in the pilot? Well, I really didn't know what to make of her because she's barely in it. So when I when I um, met with um, Ben, I was like, "Why is she missing an eye? Why is all of this?" And he was like, "I don't know. We're gonna figure it out." And I was like, "All right, cool, okay, awesome. I guess we'll just play." And then once they told me they wanted me for the series, he came up to me. We saw each other at a party. He was like, oh, my God, I figured her out. She's electric. She, her eye pops out when, she's, when she gets too involved like with her electricity and is trying to kill people. And he had this entire backstory, which was just, like, amazing. So I got, I got very, very excited. So through the first ten episodes, you kind of work with the, uh, the writers, trying to uh, flesh her out a little. I mean, they flushed her out in the writing, but it wasn't until we were on set, um, especially the first two episodes, that we really figured out her specific tone. 
you know, like she what worked better to deliver the humor. And Ben was on set every single day, so we were really able, I was I was fortunate enough that they allowed me to play with a tone, and then they were like, okay, that's it, and then we kind of went into picking, and we found her. By by the second episode, it was we figured it. I figured. Yeah, it's kind of rare to have uh, you have a superhero character, but you're also playing comedy. How was that kind of blend for you? Well, for me, which is very difficult, I tend to be a very big actress, <laughs> and they were just like it was pretty much keeping things like very like monotone, which is hard because I want to do everything <laughs> like the opposite of that. So that's actually the dry humor is what worked best with Miss Lint. So we're very curious. What was your initial reaction to the pilot scripts and the first few scripts? You know, it's funny. I think uh, I think maybe I had a little cynicism in terms of um, in terms of comedy and things like that because what I saw on the page and what I thought they would want for me was not what they wanted, and I was just thrilled and and, and surprised. Um, I had sort of uh, what I read from it initially was that they wanted a dot who was more like the previous versions of dot. You know, she's existed in the comic book, she's been in the cartoon, she's been in live action, um, and she's always been very sarcastic and very dry. And there's a bit of a trope of the, um, you know, the, the the female supporting character who is just kind of snarky and and uh, and is there to like throw out the dry one liner. And I did think that that's what it was on the page. And so I was so overjoyed when I talked to Ben. Edlund, our creator, and I talked to Wally Fister, who directed the pilot, and they wanted to go completely the other direction. Um, you know, the the dialogue can be the same, but when you reframe it from a place of real empathy and sensitivity, all of a sudden she became a human being. All of a sudden, there was all this dimension that expanded, and it became really a pleasure to to perform that. And um, and that's what I've gotten to do with Dot, and it's it's been wonderful. I, all of the characters are actually treated with a shocking amount of, uh, of complexity. They're all very layered, even the most absurd. Um, but Dot in particular is the grounding human element, and she... She has her issues, she has her anger and her resentments, but she's always operating from this place of love. Uh, you, uh, you, you say you're grounded, but you're in a surreal world, so how do you find which is your grounding level of reality? Well, that's the thing about this show and what makes it really unique is it has this uh, really shifting uh, tonal quality where it does change on a dime, and, and the absurd can stand in juxtaposition to somebody uh, who is very real and uh, whose emotions and responses are very real. And that's also part of where the, hum uh, the humor is born from. But, um, but it is something that I kind of always have to assess when I walk into a scene is like finding where my baseline is, finding what the spectrum is that I can perform in compared to, uh, say, Peter as the tick. Um, and how we can, we're, we obviously after a few episodes got to the point where we could sort of feel those, those tethers and how the shifts happen and, uh, and play with it. And everyone is so talented and so generous as performers that it wasn't, it wasn't difficult. But, um, but I do find that Dot always rings the most true when I watch a scene afterwards if it has always come from a very real place. You know, the more, the more that I try to play the joke... Or try it, or, or think of myself as being on a comedy. The less true she rings, no matter what's happening around her. So our big question is: you've done uh, you've done some very dark characters, uh, little children, of course, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street and uh, Watchmen. How was it for getting into a, a villain, but also a little more comedy? You know, that was kind of the the fun, challenging part. You know, after playing so many. You know, dark characters, and sometimes, like, like, especially with Rorschach, man, I had to really kind of 
go to a dark place and, and, and live it, you know. And, and with this character, you, you know, you still have to kind of go in there and own what's going on. It's not just ridiculous. It's, 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 you kind of have to find this grounding place and, and yet sometimes go for the laughs. Uh, and it's, you know, it was, a, it was a great experience, you know. How hard is it to find a grounding place when you have to, in a world that's really not reality? Well, you, you, you do. It's like when, when the writing is as good as it is, even when, it's, even when the writing gets really funny and ridiculous, you, it's, it's about owning it. You know, it's, 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 it's not so much about acting as much as reacting and knowing what you mean. It's like when you mean, when you've when you got dialogue, you, you need to, to, to learn how to dig down and actually mean it. And then, and then when somebody else is talking, you need to learn how to listen. And like you know, and every even though you've done this same scene maybe a hundred times from different angles, it's like every single time it has to be like the first time, and you're reliving these moments and and trying to you know own these moments and 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 make it real. About the tick that really drew you to jump into this genre. I, I, I particularly love the idea of being able to do um, shows that allow me to be serious when I want to be and funny when I want to be and romantic when I want to be. And not all shows do that. Some shows are playing very much in the same tone. You know, I did 24 for a number of years, and that's the same show every year after year. The Tick afforded me a chance to go back to my roots, which was like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and do a genre show, but one that was grounded so that the emotions between the characters are real. They're not, you know, we're not playing it as a cartoon the way it was played before, as a, as a sitcom in the last live action. So instead of doing that, I'm able to um, live in a world that's more real. Even if the tick is crazy and he's exactly the same as he was, the people around him are all trying to live their lives like, uh, you know, they're in a different show than he is. And I think, uh, you know, so it, I think that's very different from the other versions. How do you balance that? Because you, gotta ha you wanna have the human drama and the interesting character, which I, I saw the pilots for terrific. But you also want the ludicrousy of the comedy. So is there ever a balancing act where sometimes you got to pull one area up or down like a lever? It's a, it's, a, it's a tightrope walk that we do in every episode. You know, And Ben and I have talked about it from the beginning. We are, we are on the edge of like, okay, what's too much here? You know, if this is too silly, does it take away the, the impact of what the story needs to have, the emotional impact? So we're always in that balancing act. Sometimes we lean this way. Sometimes we lean a little too serious. But we, we managed to kind of keep it buoyant and entertaining and a show that people can be uh, more invested in. It's very hard to invest in something that's strictly funny. You can watch it. It's funny. It's funny. And eventually you go, all right, I've seen it. It's funny. But you want people to be invested in where is this character going to go next season? What's going to happen with their relationship? That's a world that the Tick has never lived in. So I think that's part of uh, And that's a good lesson for all of you. Uh, keep, your oh, keep people guessing where your character is going to go. Like, you know, don't worry about the episode per episode. Think about the big picture, you know. that People need to change in real life as they do in fiction. All right. Uh, one of our first events, we did a whole show devoted to one of an episode you wrote a long time ago, Lost, Walkabout. And we had Jack Bender as our guest, your friend. Do you know at the time that episode would be iconic? It was so, it's been so revealed. It's also one of the, it is, I think, the best written episode, of course, but the reveal. But was it difficult, especially trying to hide the reveal and crafting that episode? No, it wasn't. I mean, once, once uh, Damon Lindelof came up with the idea that Locke, later, that Locke had been in a wheelchair as I was starting to break that episode. Um, but no, it wasn't difficult to hide. I mean, that was something we t I talked with Jack about at length, you know, in terms of how do we hide this? How do we... 
But in terms of your question about what I thought, how I thought it was going to be an important episode, uh, the show was so brand new, and the pilot to me was so fantastic. I just thought I'm just keeping this thing afloat. I did not recognize at the time. Other people said it to me, and I just went, "Oh, thanks," but I didn't take it seriously that the show would have such an impact, or that episode would have such an impact. I was proud of it. I thought it was good, but it's it's actually taken on a life of its own. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.